Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, service, and the inner life. Join us now for a conversation with Michael Lerner, Dr. Donald Abrams, MD, and Clint Werner. Today, we explore the topic of marijuana. Is it medicine yet? Cannabis for pain and palliative care. Donald Abrams, welcome to the New School. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from Donald Abrams and a little later from Clint Werner. Uh, Donald Abrams is one of the world's foremost experts on the medicinal uses of marijuana, especially for cancer. He's a professor of clinical medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and chief of hematology oncology at San Francisco General Hospital, and he provides integrative oncology consultations at the University of California, San Francisco Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. Uh, Clint Werner, who will join us later, is author of Marijuana, Gateway to Health, How Cannabis Protects Us from Cancer and Alzheimer's Disease, which Dr. Andrew Wild says should be required reading for all medical professionals, elected officials, and everyone interested in health and wellness. And he's worked in preventive health for over 25 years. So our goal today uh, is to take this important uh, issue of uh, whether, uh, as the title has it, marijuana is it medicine yet, cannabis for pain and palliative care, uh, and really look at the science and the policy issues. Um, This question of uh, medical marijuana is a serious one at Commonweal. As many of you know, we've worked for cancer patients Uh, with cancer patients for over 26 years in the Commonweal Cancer Help Program. Also, I have uh, studied, as Donald knows, and we've done this together, integrative cancer therapies for many, many years. Uh, Donald and I share a very, very strong interest in the objective evaluation of integrative cancer therapies. Um, And so um, medical marijuana falls in that rubric of integrative cancer therapies, And the question is, what is the science basis for this? Uh, And that is the issue Donald will be addressing in the first part of of this uh, presentation. Um, The only other thing I want to add is uh, I've known Donald for many years. Uh, The quality of the integrative oncology consultations he provides is superb. Uh, And he has been a, a real pioneer in HIV research Uh, in San Francisco uh, from the beginning of the HIV epidemic. And I visited him uh, uh, at uh, San Francisco General Hospital, uh, our great public uh, hospital in San Francisco, where, as I said, he's chief of hematology oncology. And the quality of the care that Donald and his staff provide uh, for low-income people is really extraordinary. And so it's a great privilege to uh, present uh, a pioneer of HIV research, uh, a compassionate and brilliant oncologist uh, interested in integrative care, and one of the world's foremost experts on medicinal marijuana, Donald Abram. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, if I could have the slide. Actually, I think I might trace for you. Can we turn the lights off, please? trace for you a, a moment the, the path that led me to all these titles. So I was in the middle of my uh, fellowship or the beginning of my training to be a cancer specialist 
at the University of California, San Francisco yes, in sir. 1980 when suddenly AIDS came out of the blue and we didn't know what it was or what to do about it. And so I became uh, very fascinated with this, with this problem and spent most of my early career, once I became a cancer specialist, dealing with uh, HIV and HIV-related cancers. Then, if you remember, it took us a long time to get any effective therapies. And in 1992, uh, I was in Amsterdam, of all places, at the International AIDS Conference, and I was glancing at CNN headline news, and I saw Mary Rathbun being arrested. Mary was the volunteer of the year in our AIDS clinic at San Francisco General for two years in a row. She lost her only daughter to a drunk driver, but uh, was very anti-alcohol, but very pro-marijuana, and she used to bake brownies for our patients, her kids, she called them. So, so when I got back to San Francisco General, there was a letter suggesting that a clinical trial demonstrating the benefits of marijuana should come from Brownie Mary's institution, as if she were our dean. And uh, I said, you know, I can do that. I went to college in the, in the 60s, uh, so I could, I could uh, do that. And I, I started to fight the federal government, asking them for some medicinal marijuana to do research on. And it was a, a long struggle. But during that time, uh, I developed a, a strong appreciation of the power of plants as medicine which then took me to the Telluride Mushroom Festival in Telluride, Colorado, a week after I did my first ever jury duty in San Francisco. And I came home and said, I want to go to law school. But in Telluride, I'm, I met Andrew Weil, and Andy described a two-year online distance learning fellowship that you can do in integrative medicine through the program at the University of Arizona. So I said, uh-huh, I don't want to go to law school. I want to do that. And I did, and when I finished, I said... This is what I want to do now, integrative oncology, working with people living with and beyond cancer and helping them integrate these other modalities into their conventional care. So really, marijuana changed my life. So really, the question, you know, over the past few years, we've really seen an explosion, I think, of the mainstreaming of uh, cannabis. I'll, I, I alternate cannabis, I think that's sort of the more uh, medical term. So I'll tell you how we got to marijuana. But, you know, Fortune magazine... Uh, Time, Newsweek, everybody has had the issue on their cover. And now, in fact, High Times uh, has a whole uh, journal devoted to medical marijuana. So we're having a, you know, sort of a merging in the center from both directions of this issue. You know, one would think that cannabis is, a, is something that's a new medicine. But in fact, uh, my friend Ethan Russo uh, has uh, written a paper describing an uh, archaeological finding that uh, he discovered a few years ago just south of Mongolia in northern China. Uh, what they found was a tomb uh, which contained uh, the remains of a apparently Caucasoid uh, shaman, they believe, from the artifacts that were in the tomb. And there was a basket and a ceramic pot on either side of the shaman's head. And contained in that were the flowers of the female plant of cannabis sativa. So suggesting that uh, this person, probably a shaman or some healer or diviner, diviner, somebody who you know, did religious things, uh, was in fact aware that it was the flowers of the female plant uh, where mainly the activity lay. So you know, this suggests this, the tomb was aged at being uh, 2,700 years old. So uh, Therefore, you know, we can 
say that cannabis, uh, for its medicinal purposes, has been used for at least probably 3,000 years, and introduced into Western medicine uh, in the 1840s, probably went from China along the Silk Road to India, where it was widely used for many purposes. And W.B. O'Shaughnessy, who worked for the British East Indies Company as a surgeon, saw the medicinal benefits of cannabis and brought it back to the United Kingdom in 1840. Apparently, it uh, quickly became, later on, Queen Victoria's favorite uh, treatment for her menstrual cramps. So the initial uh, uses of cannabis were many and varied, things that you know physicians in the 21st century can't really appreciate how one substance can have so many potential benefits as a pain reliever, a sedative, anti-inflammatory, anti-convulsant, etc. That we tend to get nervous is, is snake oil. Interestingly, however, most of the forerunners of what we now know are pharmaceutical companies uh, in the early part of the, ninth, uh, the 20th century had products uh, that were uh, utilized uh, by physicians. These are uh, cannabis uh, nerve tonic. Uh, and again, uh, so in the early part of the 20th century, physicians could write prescriptions to patients uh, for cannabis. But the use of cannabis began to decline uh, with the availability of other drugs that could be used to treat those various conditions that cannabis, uh, you know, because new is always better when it comes to pharmaceuticals. Now, <clears throat> the real death knell to the use of cannabis as medicine came in 1937 when this gentleman, Harry Anslinger, uh, who was a head of the federal, uh, he was a prohibitionist and became the f first head of the Federal Narcotics Bureau, uh, introduced into Congress the so-called Marijuana Tax Act, actually spelling it with an H and using the Mexican word for cannabis, sort of to uh, fool physicians uh, because physicians prescribed cannabis and they weren't familiar with marijuana. Harry Anslinger not only was a prohibitionist, but he was also a racist, and he felt that increased use of cannabis by African-American jazz musicians as well as uh, Mexican uh, border laborers would lead to increased crime and mental illness in the United States. So he introduced this act, which imposed a dollar an ounce for medicinal use and a hundred dollar an ounce levy for uh, recreational use. Now remember, these were $1937, so that was a significant penalty. And interestingly, the American Medical Association was virtually alone in opposing the act because they said that there was no evidence that cannabis was harmful and that, in fact, this would impede future research, which it certainly did. Uh, so in 1942, cannabis was removed from the U.S. pharmacopoeia. So I often say cannabis has been a medicine 3,000 years for a lot longer than it hasn't been a medicine 70 years. Interestingly, in 1942, the LaGuardia Commission came out with their report. Fiorella LaGuardia, the mayor of New York at that time, put together a group of August scientists to look into the question as to whether use of cannabis was going to lead to increased crime and mental illness. And the LaGuardia, LaGuardia Commission report concluded that cannabis was a safe and effective medicine and it did not lead to increased crime and mental illness. Interestingly, every 10 years since 1942, some August government body has again looked at cannabis as medicine, come up with the same conclusions but invariably they seem to get ignored. And in fact, it looks like we've stopped doing it in 10-year cycles because the last 
was the Institute of Medicine report, Marijuana as Medicine, which was published in 1999. So we're a little off, off schedule. Now, in 1970, the Controlled Substances Act placed cannabis in Schedule One. Schedule One drugs, you need to have a special license to prescribe. Schedule Two drugs are like uh, codeine and oxycodone and morphine uh, that require a restricted uh, license, but still most physicians can get that and prescribe it. The company that, uh, the difference between Schedule One and Schedule Two, they both have a high potential for abuse but a Schedule I substance has no accepted medical use. And we need to keep that in mind when we look at some of the information that I'll be presenting. These are some of the other Schedule I substances that cannabis is listed with, uh, heroin, uh, LSD, etc. So when I began to be interested in studying uh, cannabis as a medicine, many of my colleagues said, you know, Donald, uh, we don't smoke uh, foxglove. You know, we have a drug, digitalis. And, you know, that's sort of the Western pharmaceutically dominated paradigm that you isolate the single most active component of a plant and make that into an expensive pharmaceutical. But, you know, it's true. Cannabis has 400 chemical compounds. And delta-9 THC is the one that's mainly psychoactive. However, there are at least 70 other similar cannabinoid compounds in the plant that may have medicinal benefit. For example, there's something called Delta-8 THC, which in clinical trials in Israel, in children with cancer, has been shown to be as effective an anti-nausea medicine as Delta-9 THC. But that is present in the plant, but not in the pharmaceutical uh, that's currently licensed and available in the United States. Now, I just wanted to point out some of the other non-THC cannabinoids, because the first one, cannabidiol, or CBD, is becoming very popular and very <clears throat> known in the local dispensaries. CBD is not psychoactive, but it is a potent anti-inflammatory and analgesic. So it decreases inflammation and relieves pain. So people that are seeking cannabis for those indications might prefer to get a strain of cannabis that has more CBD and less THC, THC being psychoactive. And then there's cannabinol and cannabichromine and cannabigerol, all these other uh, non-Delta-9 uh, THC cannabinoids which may have medicinal benefit. In addition to the non-THC uh, cannabinoids, there are also other components in the plant that probably are there to provide balance to the Delta-9 THC. I like the yin and the yang. We've taken Delta-9 THC and we've synthesized it and we put it in a capsule uh, with sesame oil and we call that dronabinol or marinol. We use that for nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy or to increase appetite uh, in HIV patients. But sometimes patients don't like that. And I think part of the explanation is the plant has these 400 other compounds that are either boosting the beneficial effects of the Delta-9 THC or toning down some of the adverse effects. And when you just remove the Delta-9 THC, put it in sesame oil, you lose that yin and yang. So the terpenoids and flavonoids, which give the plant its aroma, also have medicinal value. Flavonoids are polyphenols, like in my green tea, uh, many other uh, uh, nutraceuticals are in these families. And, 
you know, I think that they're there for potential uh, medicinal benefit as well. So since 1942, there has not been a lot of real research on the use of marijuana as medicine, but there's been a lot of elegant science which has actually helped us to understand how cannabis works in humans. And Clint explains this in his book, I think, very nicely. But some of the things that we've discovered is that the body has two different receptors for cannabinoids, the so-called CB1 and the CB2 receptors. And the central nervous system responses are mediated largely by the CB1 receptor, uh, which is... uh, located on membranes of cells, and when that receptor (laughs) complexes with a cannabinoid from the plant, it creates a change in the interfunction of the cell that leads to changes in control of cell function. So it's like a lock and a key mechanism. We have these cannabinoid receptors. Actually, they're the second most popular receptor in our brain. So why do we have... well? This is a rat's brain, which shows uh, the location of the uh, CB1 receptor in orange in the cerebellum, which is responsible for movement, and in these central areas of the brain, which are responsible for reward, if you will. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But now we know there's another receptor, the so-called CB2 receptor, that's not located in the brain, but was initially isolated or, or found in cells of the immune system. So in the spleen... And in the blood cells, in the lymphocytes and the so-called natural killer cells, which are responsible for cleaning up uh, tumors in our body when they form before they become cancer. So we have these two receptors, uh, the CB1 and the CB2 receptor. And these receptors are present in all animal species, all the way down to sponges. So why do all animals need cannabinoid receptors? Certainly you've never seen a monkey smoking a cigarette. You know, why do we have cannabinoid receptors? And again, Clint's book really focuses on this. But the answer is, just like we make our own endogenous opiates or endorphins, we also make our own internal cannabinoids called the endocannabinoids. And the first one was identified by Raphael Machulam, a a chemist uh, at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and he called it anandamide from the Sanskrit word for bliss. Now, we know that there are at least uh, another uh, well-identified endocannabinoid called 2-AG. So why do we have these endocannabinoids? How many are familiar with Michael Pollan's book, The Botany of Desire? A great book. Uh, Everybody read it. You might remember the chapter on cannabis, and Michael tells us why we have endocannabinoids, so that we can forget So while I'm talking to you here, I'm not thinking about where I parked my car or the last time I was here I drove in the rain or, you know, so I can be focused. And when you replace those endocannabinoids with a plant cannabinoid, you forget to forget. So everything is, whoa, novel, you know, very new. (laughs) But what is it that we're trying to forget? In Michael's next book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, everybody read that one? He's trying to... uh, capture his own food, and he's crouching with a rifle waiting to kill a deer, and he develops pain. And he says, probably this is why animal species have endocannabinoids, so that in their predatory stances, 
that may cause pain, they sort of forget about their pain. And I think that's probably as good as any explanation because if we look at why we think in science that we create these endogenous cannabinoids, we think that they're synthesized on demand uh, from uh, fat on the cell membrane, and then they uh, complex with either the CB1 receptor or the CB2 receptor, or perhaps other unknown cannabinoid receptors not yet identified, or the vanilloid receptor. And if they complex with the CB1 receptor, these endocannabinoids are probably involved in one of the following, either control of appetite, immune function, muscle, pain, the pressure inside the eye, thinking, nausea, neuroexcitability reward, or regulating our temperature. Now, if they complex with the CB2 receptor, again, I mentioned that the CB2 uh, uh, receptors are mainly on cells of the immune system, so we think that probably there's something going on with immune function, proliferation of cells or cell division, inflammation, I mentioned, and pain. And you see pain across the board, so Michael Pollan is probably correct that our endocannabinoid system is there probably to help us with our processing of pain. And that is something that I'll talk about when I get into some of the details of my own research. So although we have this prohibition against cannabis as medicine, there is now a great interest in manipulation of the endocannabinoid system by either creating things that lock with the CB1 receptor to stimulate it or to block it, or things that may increase the production of our own endocannabinoids or decrease their destruction. And I think over the next few years, there will be probably drugs coming to market that can impact the endocannabinoid system in some fashion. There already have been, in fact, and I'll talk about that right now. Anandamide, the first endocannabinoid, in low concentrations in mice leads to enhancement of appetite. So the CB1 receptor in the brain is implicated in food intake control, probably through a reward mechanism. If you take mice and you, you knock out the gene that allows them to have a CB1 receptor, they eat less than their normal uh, siblings. So again, it's felt that this receptor is involved in motivational reward aspects of eating. <clears throat> now, they also found that the other endocannabinoid, 2-AG, is present in high concentration in mother's milk. So they took mice, and they gave mice something that blocked the cannabinoid receptor, a CB1 antagonist, 24 hours after they were born. And blocking the CB1 caused them to stop suckling, and they died. So where might this be a useful agent? in people with obesity. So they developed a CB1 antagonist as a treatment for obesity because it blocks the reward aspects of eating. The drug was licensed and approved in Europe. It was called Ramonabant or Acomplia. And many, many drug companies were rushing to try to develop CB1 antagonists for this purpose because obesity is such a huge, now worldwide, epidemic. Uh, the uh, U.S. government actually did not approve Acomplia. Uh, I did a book called Integrative Oncology 
that I edited with Andrew Weil. And the chapter I wrote in the book is uh, Cannabinoids and Cancer, and I co-edited it with Manuel Guzman. Manuel's a PhD in uh, Madrid who studies cannabis as an anti-cancer drug. And he's a lovely guy, and I was once in Europe at a conference with him, and I said, how is this drug Ramonabant doing? And he said, Donald, would you block your CB1 receptor? So, so, so they did, a, a colleague in Germany talks about what happens to mice when you pharmacologically block their receptor. So they do get suppressed feeding and weight loss, but they have increased behavior associated with anxiety, and they have attenuated responsiveness to rewarding stimuli, and they can't experience pleasure. So what happened to people taking Ramonabant? Yes, they lost weight, but they became depressed, and they committed suicide. So the drug was removed from the market in Europe. So there goes CB1 receptor blockade as a treatment uh, for uh, obesity. More often, I think, we think of cannabinoids for stimulating appetite and for leading to weight gain. So these are just some symptoms. I, I have been an oncologist now for 32 years, despite my checkered path in and out through HIV and marijuana and now integrative oncology. And and I take care of cancer patients, as Michael said, at San Francisco General, as well as uh, people with cancer, I say, at the Osher Center. And uh, these are some of the problems that we see in our patients with cancer. Weight loss, cachexia, which is wasting syndrome, early satiety, getting full very quickly, loss of appetite, pain, anxiety, depression, nausea, and vomiting. So if you think about those symptoms, and if you know anything about cannabis before I even start telling you about it, it really can be quite useful for a number, if not all, of those complaints. So what do we know about uh, cannabis and chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting? So when I was in my training to be a, a cancer specialist in the 70s, or that's when I was training to be an internist, but shortly thereafter, uh, you know, that was a time, what, Jimmy Carter, I think, was president, and cannabis use was a lot more widespread, and it was before Nancy Reagan and Just Say No and the war on drugs, well, the war, whatever. So a lot of people were using cannabis, and many young people, for example, with Hodgkin's disease, told their oncologists, because that was a, a disease that we could treat with chemotherapy even back then, you know, thank you very much for this anti-nausea pill, but cannabis is much better. And so it was, uh, you know, determined that in randomized trials, oral THC was better than placebo and equivalent to what we had available at the time. Uh, that's composine. Uh, and smoked THC appeared superior to oral. Now, if we look at our armamentarium of anti-nausea drugs for chemotherapy, I wouldn't put uh, THC at the top of the list. But certainly it is useful. And I believe, who was it? Uh, Melissa Etheridge who said that she could not get through her adjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer without cannabis. Yeah, we have a lot of drugs. They are expensive. They have side effects. And if they don't work, and cannabis does, then people should have access uh, to that option. Rick Doblin, who's actually the, uh, the one who got me involved in my career in cannabis research, he's the president of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, uh, published this in the Journal of Clinical Oncology now 20 years ago. 
he uh, surveyed uh, members of the American Society of Clinical Oncology uh, and got a thousand respondents back in 1990, again, a time when it was a little just say no dominant. Uh, but 44% had recommended cannabis to at least one patient, and they believed, most of the people believed that uh, cannabis was superior to dronabinol rather than vice versa. So dronabinol, again, uh, ultimately uh, was approved for treatment of nausea and vomiting from chemotherapy in 1986, and then the, the licensing indication was expanded in 1992 uh, to cover loss of appetite, for treatment of anorexia, that's loss of appetite, associated with weight loss. So why wasn't it approved for treatment of weight loss? Well, in the placebo-controlled clinical trial, there was no difference in weight gain. The patients treated with the dronabinol actually increased their appetite, but not their weight in a statistically significant fashion compared to the placebo group. But because this was 1992... Uh, which is when Bush 1 closed the Compassionate Use Cannabis Program that was delivering cannabis monthly to a handful of patients in the U.S. <coughs> with uh, diseases that the government felt might benefit from cannabis. And there was a fear that patients with AIDS wasting were going to flood this program with requests to get a monthly canister of cannabis cigarettes. So instead, Bush 1 closed that, and the FDA approved uh, dronabinol for the treatment of loss of appetite so that they could say, here is your marijuana. So we started giving patients this dronabinol, and they said, you know, I don't really like it. It's not the same. And in fact, what they, con- what they described and what they're concerned of is really the difference in the pharmacokinetics or how the drug is handled when taken by mouth compared to when inhaled. And this is an important point because I find a lot of my older cancer patients who may be cannabis naive feel eating is good and smoking is bad. So they tend to want to eat their cannabis products. Similar to taking the pill, when you eat a baked product, the absorption of the THC, the main psychoactive component, is low and variable. So only 6 to 20% of the oral dose actually gets absorbed. And it takes a long time. It's two and a half hours until the peak concentration is reached. And when you take it by mouth, it gets metabolized in the liver, and the liver creates another psychoactive metabolite, 11-hydroxy-THC. So you get more psychoactivity, or people get more zonked, if they eat their cannabis than if they inhale it because of that reason. (coughs) Plus, it has a terminal half-life of 20 to 30 hours before half of it is removed. So I see my older patients go to the dispensary and say, they told me only to eat a quarter cookie. And I did, and nothing happened, so I ate another quarter. And I did, and nothing happened, so I ate the whole cookie. And then they call me three days later and said, what happened? Where was I? You know, it can be not pleasant, and you do have to remember the pharmacokinetics. Now, when you inhale cannabis, I know it says smoked, but inhalation, now vaporization is popular, and we'll talk about that. When it's inhaled, it's rapidly taken from the lungs right into the bloodstream, bypassing the liver, so you don't make as much of that 11-hydroxy 
psychoactive metabolite. A considerable amount when you smoke it is lost because it's burnt up. And the peak concentration occurs in two and a half minutes instead of two and a half hours, and then it rapidly declines over the next 30 minutes. So much easier to titrate the effect. And also, if you want to do this to increase your appetite before you eat breakfast, you do it two and a half minutes before, not two and a half hours before. So, and again, smaller amounts of the 11-hydroxy are formed. So, what about pain? Let me talk. I mentioned the receptors and that the elevated levels of the CB1 receptor, uh, like the opioid receptor, are found in the areas of the brain that modulate the processing of noxious stimuli. CB1 and CB2 agonists both provide analgesia or pain relief. And cannabinoids may also exert anti-inflammatory effects, as I mentioned. So in addition to central nervous system effects, like an opioid or a narcotic analgesic would give you, you also get anti-inflammatory effects like you would get from a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, ibuprofen, for example. And these analgesic effects of cannabis are not blocked by opioid antagonists. So although they seem to uh, work in similar ways, the opiates and the cannabinoids use different receptors in the brain. So studies have looked at intravenous THC, which does provide a lot of pain relief, but it also gets people a bit too zonked. In one uh, cancer trial, they used 20 milligrams of THC, and they said it was comparable to 120 milligrams of codeine, but had marked psychological effects. 20 milligrams is a lot uh, of uh, THC to take by mouth. You're listening to a conversation with Dr. Donald Abrams, Clint Werner, and host Michael Lerner. So what what do we know about some research in uh, cannabis and pain? And now I'm really going to start focusing on the work that we've done uh, with my group. Uh, HIV uh, causes a damage to the nerves that's quite painful, similar to what we see in patients receiving a number of different chemotherapeutic agents. But because I was working in HIV at the time, and because HIV-related neuropathy was a painful condition for which we really didn't have any treatment, uh, we decided to look at a study of of cannabis. Opiates don't usually work. Uh, What's most commonly prescribed is gabapentin or neurontin, which is an anticonvulsant, which has some side effects of its own. And there are anecdotal reports that cannabis may be useful in this situation that we heard from patients. We also knew that in animal models, the animal model of neuropathic pain is to put a rat's tail on a hot plate and see how long it can stay there. And when the rat was given cannabinoids, their tail can stay on the hot plate longer. So it felt that there might be some reason to give uh, cannabis in neuropathic pain. Now, because we were going to do a study looking at cannabis for pain relief, we were concerned that we would be dinged by people who say, well, gee, all the people in your study are probably proponents of cannabis as medicine, and they're all going to smoke whatever you give them and say, yes, this is relieving my pain, or if they're smoking placebo, which certainly they'll be able to tell, they're going to say no. So in addition to asking about their pain, we did a so-called experimental pain model where we took a thermode and we heated the skin to 104 degrees for a half an hour on the forearm. And then we applied capsaicin cream. Capsaicin is the ingredient in chili peppers. And that creates an area of funny feeling uh, 
around that rectangle, which we could map out with a brush or a piece of foam while the person is looking in another direction. And this is a test that my pain uh, studying colleagues use uh, as an anchor, uh, a much more objective anchor for their response uh, to various drugs that they're investigating. So uh, we first did a study in 16 patients with HIV neuropathy where they all smoked real cannabis. And we saw a beneficial effect. In fact, one patient told me he had had his neuropathy for six years, and he had been in an automobile accident and broke a bone, was in the hospital and had a percutaneous delivery system for uh, morphine. And he said when he was using that, his, his neuropathic pain didn't bother him as much. It was still there, but he wasn't thinking about it. He said in contrast with the cannabis, the pain disappeared. So that was, that was good, and that led us then to uh, calculate the sample size that we needed uh, to do a placebo-controlled study uh, in patients with HIV-related peripheral neuropathy. And we did that and published our results a number of years ago in the best uh, neurology journal. We took patients and we asked them to keep a diary of how bad their neuropathic pain was on a scale of 0 to 100 for a week before we put them in our general clinical research center. And we put them in our general clinical research center for two days. Uh, we just kept them there so that they could adjust and we'd see if their pain went down just being off their feet, and it did a little bit. And then we uh, had the patient smoke, 25 patients smoked real cannabis, and 25 patients smoked uh, cannabis placebo. And the uh, curve here on the bottom shows you that <clears throat> uh, 50 4% of the patients smoking cannabis achieved a greater than 30% reduction in their pain compared to 24% of those smoking placebo. Now, normally, my pain colleagues say, if you get greater than 20% reduction, that is a drug that you should look at. But because we were studying cannabis, we set the bar higher, and we said greater than 30% would be our threshold for calling these people responders. This uh, curve here shows you what happened when we were doing the uh, experimental pain model to the patient's neuropathic pain on smoking their first cigarette. The top line shows you that the placebo group's pain decreased 19%. The bottom line shows you that the cannabis smokers, their pain really decreased 80%. And that was highly statistically significant. These two curves show you what happened to the area of funny feeling around the rectangle of heat and capsaicin. The top line are the placebo group where that area either stayed the same or increased, and the bottom line is the cannabis group where that area decreased. Again, very much coinciding with what we found the effect was on their neuropathic pain. So we concluded in this study that smoke cannabis is an effective treatment in patients with painful HIV-related peripheral neuropathy and it was also effective in the experimental pain model. We did a so-called number-needed-to-treat analysis, which looks at the number of patients that we needed to expose to cannabis to have one have a beneficial effect. And that number was 3.6. And in another study that was done with gabapentin or Neurontin, the anticonvulsant widely used in HIV neuropathy, the number needed to treat was 3.6. Now, that wasn't a head-to-head -head comparison, but the magnitude of the relief of pain is, is very much the same. 
Now, my desire would have been to do a study in my patients with chemotherapy-related neuropathy to see if cannabis is useful. I have tried to do four studies in cancer patients at San Francisco General Hospital and have not been able to successfully enroll any of them to the point where a medical anthropologist whose interest is in clinical trial accrual said, we need to study that. Why cancer patients don't want to participate in your study? I, I think HIV patients are a community in a way that cancer patients are not so community-oriented. Maybe prostate and breast cancer patients now following the HIV mode are more communityized. But also HIV patients are probably more receptive and open to cannabis. Cancer patients either don't want to use cannabis at all, or if they want to use it, they have their own, and they don't want to participate in a clinical trial where they're going to get the government cannabis. I don't know the reason, but I'm just <laughs> speculating. Todd McCurea was a, a, a cannabis physician in Oakland, and after I published the study showing that uh, cannabis was useful in neuropathic pain, he sent me uh, his whole <clears throat> collection of, of cannabis medicine uh, photographs from 1906 saying thank you for showing us what we've known for 100 years that cannabis is a neuralgic or useful in uh, neuropathic pain. So another study that, that I thought was very important to do was a study looking at the interaction between cannabinoids and opioids in pain relief uh, because both of them share similar properties uh, pharmacologically and initially, they were thought to act on the same pathway. In studies, again, in mice and rats, however, that correlates into humans, <coughs> it's been uh, surmised that THC greatly enhances the pain-relieving effects of morphine in a synergistic fashion. So 1 plus 1 equals 5 as opposed to 2. <coughs> and that's uh, information about the different receptors and how they work. The bottom line being that if you combine <coughs> cannabinoids and opioids, there is the possibility that you could get persistent and enhanced relief of pain from opiates at lower dosages for longer time. So the last study that we <coughs> conducted that was just published uh, in uh, last month <coughs> was to evaluate the effect of vaporized cannabis on blood levels of prescribed opiates. So this was in patients. Originally, this started as a, patient, as a cancer patient study because I'm an oncologist, so I figured these are the patients I take care of. Um, I'm more familiar with cancer pain because these other kinds of chronic pains that patients have, I just find personally more difficult to understand. Cancer, I know, causes pain. You have a mass that's pushing it, the pain. So, so we, we got funded to do this as a cancer pain study, but... After nine months, I had only enrolled one patient. So I told NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, who funded the study, I need to expand the eligibility criteria to include any patient with chronic pain on either sustained relief morphine or sustained relief oxycodone. And this was funded by NIDA, so the National Institute on Drug Abuse. NIDA has a congressional mandate that they can only study substances of abuse as substances of abuse. So when I wanted to study the beneficial effects on peripheral neuropathy, NIDA can't fund that. The government says no. So fortunately, if you can recall, 1999 in California, we had a budget surplus in the state. 
and Senator John Vasconcellos created uh, an appropriation to give $3 million a year for three years to the University of California to establish a Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research. And then, because NIDA is the only legal source of cannabis, NIDA made an arrangement with the Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research to supply their funded investigators with NIDA marijuana. This study, I said, was going to be a study to look at the safety of cannabis and opioids. So I actually got funded from NIDA for this study. So what did we do? This was a five-day... All of the studies that we do are inpatient, which is a problem, but, you know, it's the only way we know that the patients are really smoking the cannabis. We watch them smoke it. We tell them to use the so-called Fulton Puff Procedure, where they inhale for 15 seconds, hold it for 10, and then repeat every, so that we get a standardized delivery. And we know that they're not sharing it with their housemates, etc. So we, all, we do all of our studies in the inpatient clinical research setting. And this was five days. On the first day, patients came in taking their opiate, sustained release, and we drew blood for 12 hours to measure the curve of the level of the opiates in their bloodstream. And then we began vaporizing cannabis three times a day. And on day five, we drew the blood levels of the opiates again. And during this time, we also asked patients, how's your pain? So we enrolled, for a pharmacokinetic interaction study, you don't need a lot of patients. Usually 10 patients or eight is enough because you're measuring blood levels and that's very uh, low variability usually. So we had 10 patients on sustained relief morphine getting about uh, 60 milligrams twice a day who came in with an average pain score of about 35 on the 1 to 100 scale. In the morphine, in the oxycodone sustained release group, we had 11 patients coming in on 50 milligrams twice a day with slightly higher baseline pain scores of about 44. Now this is uh, published in Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics uh, in December, this is the curve showing what happened to the morphine blood level. The top line is day one, and the bottom line is day five. So actually, if anything, there was maybe a decrease in the blood level of morphine after exposure to vaporized cannabis. The oxycodone curves are more or less superimposable. So no change. So if there's no change or a decrease in the blood level, what do we think would happen to the pain? you would think it would go up. So what we saw was for the overall group, they started with a score of 40 and went to 29. So that's a significant 25% reduction. Actually, the morphine group had a 33% reduction, even despite the fact that the blood level went down, and the oxycodone group uh, had about a 20% reduction. So that was, that was nice. Uh, we proved that co-administration of vaporized cannabis with oral sustained relief <clears throat> opiates was safe. I didn't go into that data, but we saw no side effects. Uh, and uh, appears to enhance the analgesia. Now, this was published, and just yesterday, the journal sent me a letter to the editor uh, saying that, uh, well, we didn't have a placebo group, and there's not enough patients to really say that it decreased pain, because that... We decided that was sort of the highlight. You know, who's going to publish a paper saying there's no change in the pharmacokinetics? We said, despite the fact that there's no change, we seem to get an increase in pain because that's a significant increase. I told you that 
my pain colleagues say anything over 20% is significant. So, so now I have to respond to this letter to the editor and say, yes, you're right, and we would love to do a larger study. In fact, the next study that I'd like to do in pain would be to expose people on sustained relief opiate to high THC cannabis or high CBD cannabis or balanced or placebo and have them come in and four days each day smoke one of those different ones and then see what happens to pain, chronic pain. Again, Todd McCaria <coughs> sent me this, which shows morphine and cannabis together in one capsule. I think it's uh, poison because of the chocolate. <coughs> but that's my bias. <coughs> so I mentioned that Institute of Medicine uh, report in 1999 on cannabis as medicine. And they say the accumulated data indicate potential therapeutic value for cannabinoid drugs in pain relief, control of nausea and vomiting, and appetite stimulation. And they say THC itself, the dronabinol, the effects are best established. Well, yes, because they allow people to study that, and they don't allow you to study cannabis. The effects of cannabinoids are generally modest. Usually they're more effective medications. Again, yes. But if you're Melissa Etheridge and this is the only thing that works for your chemotherapy-related nausea and vomiting that allows you to complete your course, then it's important and should be there. <clears throat> now, again, I say, as a cancer doc, every day I see patients with loss of appetite, weight loss, nausea, vomiting, moderate to severe pain, anxiety, depression, and insomnia. Normally, my colleagues across the street in the cancer center would probably write a prescription for each of these things to give to the patient. All of them are going to be expensive. All of them potentially could interact with each other. And I can tell patients, try one thing. Now, what is the issue with euphoria? Clint made up in his book a great word, uh, euphoria, euphoriaphobia. <laughs> you know, that we live in a euphoriaphobic society. You know, and when I go to these meetings from the International Cannabinoid Research Society where everybody does research with animals, they talk about euphoria as if it's an adverse event. So, you know, again, if you're dealing with patients who have cancer and they're terminal, I don't think euphoria is bad, you know. I, when, I, when I ask my, my cancer patients, what brings you joy? The number who tell me gardening, I don't think is, is you know coincidental. I think if you have cancer and you feel that part of you is dying or that you are dying, that the ability to bring life out of the ground is something that is joyous. And I think if a patient can grow their own medicine, that is very empowering. So <clears throat> what about the safety? One of the things I told you in the, in the, the, the mixture of cannabinoids and opioids was safe. They made us measure the amount of oxygen in the blood because all through the night when patients were adding cannabis to uh, their opiates, because opiates are present in the brainstem, and if the concentration gets too high, it could slow respiration and people could die. So cannabinoids, there are no cannabinoid receptors in the brainstem. So it is very hard to overdose, and there are no deaths reported from overdoses of cannabis. It's been estimated that one would need 800 cigarettes to kill and that would be death due to carbon monoxide and not cannabinoid. By comparison, the lethal dose of vodka is 300 milliliters and 60 milligrams of nicotine. 
And again, it's because of the lack of brainstem cannabinoid receptors. The addictive potential and minor withdrawal symptoms of cannabis are less than or equal to those of caffeine. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to quit drinking coffee. I did that about 30 years ago, and it was really not pleasant. So, uh, but anyway, the Institute of Medicine also uh, said in their 1999 report that the goal of clinical trials of smoked marijuana would not be to develop it as a licensed drug, but as a first step towards the development of non-smoked rapid-onset cannabinoid delivery systems. They say this may take years, and in the meantime, there are patients with debilitating symptoms for whom smoked marijuana may, re- may supply relief. So they said clinical trials for symptom management should be conducted with the goal of developing rapid-onset, reliable, safe delivery systems, <clears throat> which led us uh, to conduct a study uh, funded by the University of California Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research looking at a vaporizer as a smokeless delivery system. So this is essentially a heating unit and a fan, and cannabis is put in a chamber and put on top of the heating unit and fan, and then attached to it is a valve and then a bag that's really a turkey roasting bag is what they used to send you, the bags, turkey roasting bags. Now they've become a little more sophisticated. Uh, And as the uh, cannabinoids heat up, the fan inflates that balloon, and then it's a one-way valve that only... Uh, releases when you uh, push on it and inhale. And THC vaporizes at a lower temperature than it burns. So vapors are cooler, purer, and probably less toxic than smoke. And when you vaporize, you may get more of the elements because they're not burned off in combustion. So we did a clinical trial. It was the easiest study I've ever done because we looked for 25 to 40-year-old chronic marijuana smokers. Uh, we had to beat them away with a stick. And we, we put them in our general clinical research center for six days and gave them $600. And each day they either smoked or vaporized half of one of three different strengths of NIDA cigarettes. 1.7% THC, 3.4%, and 6.8%. And this shows the blood levels of THC after smoking and vaporizing. And again, you can see that the lines are superimposable. <coughs> then we looked at expired carbon monoxide. Expired carbon monoxide is a measure of exposure to noxious gases. And the bottom line is the vaporizer group, which was stable. There was no exposure to noxious gases, whereas the top line is what happened when one smoked a cannabis cigarette. And to show uh, comparability, we also needed, uh, we also published uh, this table of the subjective high. And one of the reviewers of this manuscript said, how did you verify the high? You know, because they want to know what my gold standard was for this, you know, there's no, I can't do a blood test that confirms that, that they were as high as they, well, we did, it matches the THC, but you can see again that the physiological effects were comparable as well uh, with inhalation of vapor uh, versus combustion. So I just want to close a good segue into Clint, uh, who should be off of his interview soon, uh, about some of the work that Manuel Guzman and his colleagues uh, are doing. Cannabis in 1974, the National Cancer Institute, 
had investigators, one of them became my boss uh, seven years later, that discovered that cannabinoids had anti-cancer activity. 1974, but that research sort of got lost or moved very far off campus to Italy and Spain. That's where most of this work is currently being done. And there's an increasing body of preclinical evidence suggesting that cannabinoids may have anti-cancer activity. They do work, as I mentioned, as antioxidants and anti-inflammatory, and both of these we know are important in reducing cancer risk. There's also a possibility of direct anti-cancer activity through the cannabinoid receptors, which may induce programmed cell death or apoptosis and also may impair tumor vascularization. Gliomas, brain tumors, and skin tumors seem responsive in animal models. However, in looking at uh, a nude mouse model where these mice don't have an immune system, so you can transplant human cancers into them and then give them cannabinoids and see what happens, various different tumor uh, xenografts or foreign grafts seem to respond, including lung cancer, thyroid, lymphoma, skin, again, and brain. So that's pretty exciting. And Clint uh, will have more to say about that. So again, <clears throat> one of the problems that, that my more conventional colleagues say is, well, gee, how do you dose, how do you tell patients how to dose it? And I wrote a paper uh, with uh, some other investigators uh, sort of describing the problems. Anytime you're dealing with a plant, the plant varies in potency depending on how it's grown, what its genetics are, if it was harvested in the summer or the winter, or the dry side of the mountain or the wet side, etc. <clears throat> it's very difficult to standardize a dose of an inhaled medicine. I mentioned the Fulton puff procedure that we tried to use. And then there's individual variation in response to cannabis that probably relates to people's prior experience, set and setting, and guess what? Just like everything else, it's going to be your genes. These cannabinoid receptors are now found to have SNPs, or single nucleoside polymorphisms, just a single change in one you know, gene changes the way these receptors work in different people. So that's why maybe some people say, well, I smoke marijuana and nothing ever happened, and some people immediately become paranoid when they even think about inhaling. So, <clears throat> you know, so we decided that uh, a patient-determined self-dosing model is probably what should be done. And self-titration seems acceptable in view of the plant and host variables and the low toxicity of cannabis. I mentioned gabapentin that we use for treating uh, HIV neuropathy. We often give people a prescription of 300 milligrams of gabapentin and say, hey, start with one three times a day. If that doesn't work, take two. If that doesn't work, take three. So that self-titration model is not foreign to us uh, as physicians. So now let me just uh, conclude a little bit with where we are in California as healthcare providers. You remember it's now... 16 years ago, that we passed uh, Proposition 215. 56% of the state voted in favor. This allows for the right to possess and cultivate marijuana for medical purposes where medical use has been deemed appropriate and recommended by a physician. And the list of indications include treatment of cancer, anorexia, AIDS, spasticity, glaucoma, arthritis, migraine, or any other illness for which marijuana provides relief. So quite an open window. I was called to New York to meet with Elliot Spitzer when he was the attorney general and was threatening to 
ban their proposed legislation. And so I had to uh, brief him. I guess I gave him too much briefing. Anyway, so uh, <clears throat> Elliot uh, told me that, uh, that the legislation in New York was to allow cannabis for use for terminal patients who had no other options. And I said, well, it seems a little severe to me, you know, but I don't know. Anyway, just to, you, Michael, I think, mentioned that 80% of Bolinas votes for medical marijuana. In San Francisco, we had more people voting for cannabis than Clinton, which was, you know, big in those days. And currently, in the United States, there are 16 states now and the District of Columbia who all have voted uh, to allow physicians to discuss and patients to use cannabis. Now, I was on Dr. Oz uh, last year uh, because they had just approved this in New Jersey. And in New Jersey, they were going to allow six dispensaries in the whole state, two in the north, two central, and two in the south. And by that time, a year after they had voted, they hadn't been established. So although many of these states now have legislation, it's not always easy for patients uh, to access cannabis in those states. About uh, eight years, how many years is that, after 1996, uh, the uh, Medical Board of California uh, issued a white paper saying the intent of the board at this time is to reassure physicians that if they use the same proper care in recommending medical marijuana to their patients as they would any other medication or treatment, their activity will be viewed by the medical board just as any other appropriate medical intervention. So I uh, constantly and confidently uh, can write letters for my patients so that they can obtain cannabis at dispensaries. Uh, and uh, once I was at the uh, gym treadmilling and I saw a Lou Dobbs quick vote question, do you believe the federal government should prosecute doctors who prescribe medical marijuana? So the next day I looked at the results and with 4,500 respondents, it was 92% said no and 8% said yes. The Pew survey in 2010 also found that 75% of respondents believe patients should have access to marijuana for medical purposes, and that's across the country. Similar numbers of physicians in surveys also believe that patients should have access uh, to medical marijuana. But we don't, you know, for the most part. And when people ask me, gee, Donald, in this age of nanotechnology and genetic engineering, why do you continue to focus so much on a plant. And I say it's because it's returning us to the roots of medicine. So with that, I will stop my remarks, and I see Clint is here, and invite Clint in uh, to join us in conversation. Right? So Donald Abrams, thank you so much for a deeply informative presentation, and Clint Werner, Welcome. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you having me here, Michael. Uh, I introduced you before. You're the author of Marijuana Gateway to Health, How Cannabis Protects Us from Cancer and Alzheimer's Disease. Uh, and you've been active in this field uh, uh, for many, many years. Uh, and I should say, you and Donald are partners. We are. Yes. We're actually spouses, spouses now. You're spouses? We got married three times. Yeah. Three times. Yeah. Um, just for full disclosure, I, yeah, yeah. I want it to be uh, part of <laughs> our, our record. Uh, Clint, I, I read your book with uh, great interest. Uh, I'd also read uh, Lester Grinspoon's 
uh, classic on the subject, which was written, or what year was that written in? <clears throat> I believe it was published in 70. Um, was it 70? 70, 71? He, start, what, what he started to write it as a treatise against marijuana in the middle 60s, uh, when a lot of Harvard students were starting to use marijuana, and he had just finished a textbook on schizophrenia, and he had a little extra time, so he said, well, this is terrible. The best and brightest minds at Harvard are ruining their lives with this noxious, dangerous weed. So I'll produce a scholarly paper, and hopefully it'll turn some people away from doing this. He started to do the research, and he came to the conclusion, there's nothing wrong with this. What's going on here? Why are we ruining people's lives over it? And he ended up writing Marijuana um, Reconsidered, and then Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine later. Now, in your book, you mentioned that while he was doing this research and writing, his son developed cancer. That was, you know, some of the stories in here are really quite remarkable how they unfold. So Lester wrote the book, Marijuana Reconsidered, and he became a spokesperson for decriminalization or legalization. A couple of years later, his son, uh, Danny, about 13, was diagnosed with leukemia. And... I don't know if people know the history of chemotherapy, but very quickly it was essentially derived from mustard gas. Um, And, yeah, there was an explosion in Italy, and the whole village was pretty much wiped out by mustard gas, and when they did the autopsies, they found it slowed the division of cells. So that was the basis for modern chemotherapy. And it made people sick. This derivative of mustard gas, it worked you know, to some degree to halt the division of the rapidly dividing cells, but it made people very ill because the cells that divide rapidly are in the intestine and the GI tract. So it affected those and affected the hair that divides rapidly, the follicles. So people lost their hair. But Danny was vomiting after his treatments. Dr. Grinspoon's son was vomiting constantly for hours, dry heaving, miserable, and didn't want to continue his chemotherapy. At a party... A faculty member said, hey, I know someone in Arizona who had leukemia, who did chemo, and he was a young guy, and he smoked marijuana, and it totally relieved his symptoms. Lester wasn't that keen on doing it, but his wife, you know, a mother, she said, I'm going to try it. She went to a high school, got some kids to (laughs) buy some marijuana, brought it to her. She had her son smoke it in the parking lot before they went in for his chemotherapy treatment. He did not get sick. He had no of the, none of the anxiety, none of the nausea, and in fact, on the way home, he asked to stop and get a sandwich, which was unbelievable for them. So they told the doctors, and the doctor said, you can use it here. You don't have to do it in the parking lot. Bring it in. And so he became an advocate for medical marijuana. Right. And he was a professor of psychiatry, now emeritus, emeritus. at Harvard, Harvard Medical School. And his co-author was the associate director of the Harvard mental health uh, letter. Dr. So uh, these James Bacalar. Yeah, so very deeply credible people started, uh, as you mentioned, assuming that this was a terrible uh, epidemic among Harvard students. It was destroying the, the minds of the best and the brightest. Right, and discovered, as you mentioned, every 10 years or so a report comes out uh, saying we've looked at it again. Um, Legalize it. Exactly. <laughs> Um, Donald, I want to come back to you for one moment on, because you and I have both studied uh, alternative, complementary, integrative cancer therapies for, for many years. Um, 
and because at this point marijuana is certainly in that category, uh, do you know any other alternative or integrative cancer therapy for which the science is as strong as it is for marijuana with respect to cancer? With respect to symptom management? Symptom or? management. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Freddie, do you have any thoughts? Maybe acupuncture. Yeah, acupuncture is good for symptoms. But you mean, you mean like an herbal, a botanical? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this is Dr. Freddie Rosenthal, the... Uh, Cronenberg. Fred, Freddie Cronenberg. How can I do that? <laughs> Freddie Cronenberg, who's the emeritus director of the Rosenthal Center for Complementary Medicine at Columbia University, and also co-heads the program on herbal medicine with Andy Weil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, melatonin has been a lot of research for breast cancer. Yeah. That's not an herbal. But yeah, it's not an herbal either. Yeah. Doesn't do what marijuana does. Yeah. I can tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, there's really. There, it's point. so unique. The thing about marijuana cannabis is it's the only plant that produces these compounds that work to supplement our own natural cannabinoid compounds, endocannabinoids, to optimize our state of health. Mm -hmm. Now, Clint, one of the, the things I liked best about this book is that you have a, a table in here, I'm not sure I can find it yeah. right now, that um, shows all the different types of marijuana that are being grown now with their THC and CBD uh, components. And my understanding is that THC and CBD compete for the cannabinoid receptors. Is that correct? CBD doesn't actually bind to the receptor, okay. but it works to direct the level of THC that affects the receptors. I see. And it it's such a new science. I think we're going to find out a lot more about how it reacts because we're really at the earliest stages and we're going to find more activity. But it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting agent in that it, it works um, not so directly but more by proxy. It's, it's so like, uh, doesn't really bind to the receptors, is okay. what I understand. Yeah. But it does influence the way that THC, okay. they work together right. in what's called the entourage effect. So just so you all can, those of you who buy the book will see it, but there's a CBD to THC ratio chart. And then there are all these, and just as a medical anthropologist, it's fascinating, uh, that there are all these, uh, what do you call them? Strains. Not brands, strains. strains. But one is called True Blueberry OG Kush. Another is called Harlequin, Soma Plus, Canatonic, Cotton Candy Diesel. And here's my favorite, Women's Collective Stinky Purple. Uh, and, uh, but there's also Pineapple Tie and so on and so forth down a long list. But the point is, this is, this is what I really want to get to. Um, if you are a cancer patient or someone else with an illness where there's some evidence of efficacy, and you have a physician's prescription, and you want to figure out which strain is important for the specific set of symptoms that you have, to what degree is that an exact science at this point, and to what degree is that guesswork? It's somewhere in between. Um, I think there's some science to it, but... I think this speaks to the value of having safe access for patients because in states where medical marijuana is not available legally at the state level, 
basically people go to a dealer and whatever the dealer happens to have, you get. And you don't know if it's going to work for your pain or your mood. It might work against your mood. There are certain types of uh, cannabis that actually um, trigger apprehension, whereas others, you know, stimulate euphoria. And so basically it's a hit and miss. You get what they give you, and you don't know if it's safe, clean, effective. But you go to a cannabis dispensary like we have here in California and Colorado and some other states, and they have labs now that analyze the cannabis, and they have them labeled so you can know what you're getting, how strong the THC is, if there's CBD in it, how much, if there's more CBD than THC, if there's a nice balanced ratio or what you want to get. And you can talk to the people who work there who have had the experience of talking with lots of patients and researching this and learning what the different strains do, and they can more effectively steer you to something that's going to be effective so you don't have to waste your time and money and whatever else, you know, you're What's suffering. Indica versus sativa. Yeah, there's, well, there's indica and sativa, and they have different effects, and then there's the hybrids, which sort of blend the effects. So tell the difference between indica and sativa. Uh, so, Hold on, if we can hold the question okay, I'll get for that a little one more. Just time. So I'm going to get you all. Yeah, yeah. Sativa is the marijuana that most people knew in the 60s, 70s, and up to the 80s. It was the Colombian, the Mexican, the Hawaiian cannabis. It's grown in the equatorial regions. It grows tall and lanky. It has buds that are spaced far apart. It doesn't produce a lot of heavy, big buds. And it's, the to me... My favorite, it's the up, the inspirational, the motivational high, the real high that made you want to go out and do something, you know, or have something going on. The indica comes from more of the Afghani region, the Hindu Kush region, and it's a smaller plant, squat, heavier bud development, and it produces a heavier effect. It produces a more sort of narcotizing, which they call couch lock or muscle relaxing yeah. <laughs> Sedating. Sedating. And, um, and so they have different qualities. You know, an indica might be good for muscle relaxing, muscle pain, muscle tension, uh, whereas a sativa can be really good for mood elevation and triggering appetite and things like this. So they each have their qualities. And then the blends, you can get one that's a more hev- heavily indica but has some sativa qualities or vice versa. Indoor-outdoor? Ah, indoor-outdoor. I prefer outdoor. Indoor is the result of prohibition. It's a necessary response to persecution. Um, People who are persecuted frequently go underground. And so during the uh, Reagan-initiated campaign against marijuana production... um, in which they had paramilitary operations in heavy marijuana-growing areas like Humboldt, and they came in with helicopters and automatic weapons. People couldn't grow, so what they did was they engineered, and also in Amsterdam, where there's not so much sunlight, they engineered growing indoors using high-pressure lights and hydroponics or soil with liquid nutrients. And it's very artificial, whereas outdoor, the plants are grown in harmony with the earth, with the cycles of nature, you get a full spectrum of sunlight, which I really think affects the caliber of the healing compounds because you can't make the sunlight in a closet or basement. Um, 
a lot of indoor grown marijuana is really good and really amazing, but I still think that the outdoor has a more healing quality, a more holistic sort of enveloping and nurturing quality than the indoor. So a fundamental question, again, coming back to cancer patients, is uh, when Donald was describing pain, nausea, uh, you know, a whole set of different symptoms, uh, and you said, Donald, that you can give one prescription as opposed to seven different medications, um, but is it actually true that the same strain of marijuana will be equally effective for these different symptomatic patterns or if somebody has one set of things but not another do we know enough to say what strains they should uh, experiment with? I think we know enough in these states where it's it's accessible because of you know the legalization of medical marijuana um, people have done enough trial and error to have a pretty good idea about what they're going to do. And the hybrids tend to combine those effects. So you can get a strain that will ease your pain, uh, elevate your mood, stimulate your appetite, and even give you a little relaxation. So, But it, since THC and CBD, okay, they don't compete for sites, but, the, but there's... For potency, they compete. Okay, for potency, they compete. So suppose you're a cancer patient who really doesn't want to get stoned, okay? Uh, then you want a CBD heavy. And, but then the CBD uh, uh, potency is largely related to the anti-nausea and so forth, anti-pain things, or does that split between the THC and the CBD? I think it's probably split. Okay. I mean, actually, I think THC has the bulk so far as we know, it could just be that it's the one we've looked at because it's the popular cannabinoid. Okay. But it seems to have the bulk of the anti-cancer, neuroprotective, and um, anti-nausea activity. But I think that adding some CBD in there can really enhance those effects. Right. They, they work together to do more than they can apart. So, Donald, when you write a prescription, do you yeah. recommend a particular strain? So, good, good that you asked. First of all, we cannot write a prescription all because right. I can write a prescription mm-hmm. only with my Schedule One license for okay, when I do fine. research. Right. So, what a doctor writes is a recommendation, okay. a letter. Okay. Uh, a doctor can write a letter saying, you know, I recommend that this patient do cannabis for this, uh, these problems, and I will continue to follow them. And then I could designate a caregiver for that person so that that other person can also have cannabis on their person. And people take that letter to a dispensary. The dispensary calls me to verify that I wrote it. And when I say yes, then that person could access the dispensary for a year. The state also has a licensing program where patients can take a letter and forms and get pay $50 to the state of California to get an ID card. Many patients I see don't want to register with the state. So also... I cannot tell patients where to get cannabis because that's considered aiding and abetting under the law. So I have people coming to me, you know, older cancer patients who don't, they're not plugged in and I can't tell them where to get that. Do I tell them what particular type to get? Again, if a patient needs to be more stimulated, then I would suggest that they get a sativa. If they need, if they're having trouble sleeping and they want to be more sedated, 
then I would suggest indica. If they have pain and inflammation and don't want to get a psychoactive effect, then a higher CBD, lower THC. But other than that, you know, I don't know OG Kush and, you know, that's what the people, as Clint says, in the dispensary know best. I just want to make a comment about indoor-outdoor, personally, that uh, one of the reasons I tell patients to eat organic is because a, a plant, not only to avoid herbicides, pesticides, and fertilizers, which are on conventional grown produce, but a plant that's grown outdoors organically needs to work to protect itself from other plants, from birds and insects, and from the sunshine. And the only way a plant can protect itself is by making chemicals. They're called phytoalexins, and they turn out to be the same phytonutrients that benefit us. So I say if we're going to let food be our medicine and medicine be our food, organic is much more potent than conventional. And I often go to growers that come to talks that I give and say, don't you think that that would hold true for cannabis, that outdoor grown would be more, it would be more necessary for the plant to fight to protect itself than an indoor grown, you know, coddled, doesn't do anything plant. And, you know. Clint, Clint uh, your, the title of your book says, How Cannabis Protects Us from Cancer, How Protects Us from Cancer and Alzheimer's Disease. Now, most of the focus of Donald's remarks, although he mentioned the research on uh, the anti-cancer effects of marijuana, but most of them had to do with palliation of, of symptoms. Uh, but you, you speak also of Alzheimer's disease in terms of protection. I went to the, the Google um, uh, site on medical marijuana, and as in your book, but just because it's independent, it goes, and Donald mentioned some of these, it talks about the evidence on glaucoma, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, mental disorders, lung cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, breast cancer, HIV, AIDS, brain cancer, opioid dependence, uh, ALS, um, and uh, what else do we have here? And uh, inflammatory skin disease. Um, how, given that a lot of this research hasn't been able to be done in the United States, where is the strength of evidence greatest on uh, conditions other than cancer? From where does the evidence come? No. no which, where, what, what is the strongest oh, evidence? I would say probably Alzheimer's. So say a little more about that. What, what is the evidence on Alzheimer's? Well, it was pretty encouraging to me. It was, the study was released uh, several years ago on my birthday, mm-hmm. so I thought it was a great gift, <laughs> in which uh, some researchers at Scripps, um, I'm going to paraphrase, but essentially the spokesperson for the study said, we don't want to be in the position of recommending that people use illicit substances, but there's nothing available that is as effective as THC for preventing the development of or stopping the progression of Alzheimer's disease. And what they found is that THC actually, first, it discourages the environment that leads to Alzheimer's. But part of the um, pathology of Alzheimer's is the accumulation of plaque in the pathways that relay nerves through the brain, nerve signals through the brain, and interrupts the ability to you know, for the signals to reach their destination and convey information. Um, they found that THC actually goes in and chisels what seems to eat away, break up the plaque, and free up these pathways. Even more interesting is the research found, research found that 
THC triggers the production of healthy, functional new brain cells. It's called adult hippocampal neurogenesis. It's the complete opposite of everything we've been brainwashed with. Reagan and his hysteria that marijuana destroys brain cells because they suffocated monkeys nearly to death and then checked their brains. And, oh, they had brain damage. But it wasn't the marijuana. It was a lack of oxygen. So now we find that actually something that we didn't even know existed 30 years ago because people believed once you got your neurons, that's all you had. You didn't make any more. But a young upstart uh, researcher, a young woman, decided to buck the traditional wisdom and look at it, and she discovered we do produce new brain cells. And cannabis, THC, triggers the production of these healthy, functional new brain cells. Now, one of the realities of our time is that we're living with an aging population. Right. And Lester Grinspoon, again, the Harvard uh, researcher who did the pioneering work, talks in his very informative uh, uh, marijuana and cancer, marijuana blog, uh, about uh, the general experience-enhancing benefits of marijuana for aging people. That is to say that as senses dull in many respects, or can dull in many respects, that the experience-enhancing dimension can be an important uh, issue as well as uh, the many different ways in which it impacts age-related conditions, at least in the preliminary studies. Uh, would you speak to that? Well, the, I mean, that's certainly one of the things people enjoy about marijuana is sens- uh, sensory enhancement. Um, you know, it's a great thing for me to go out to Golden Gate Park and get a little buzz on on a perfect California day where the sky is shockingly blue and the trees are green and there's beautiful flowers and everything's redolent and wonderful. And, you know, so there is that incredible enhancement of, you know, your visual acuity and your, your, not only the acuity, but what you notice. You, You know, it takes away this sense of the mundane. And I suppose as you age, you accumulate and, you know, more sense of mundaneness in your life because he has an age (laughs) (laughs) close but but you know if you if you get burned out and by life certainly a little marijuana can give you a jump start and enhance your senses and your yours and also the the sense of when you get older it's you know it's nice to think back on your life and to go into those moments of reverie and i think marijuana is really great for that remembering and enjoying the great times you've had let me speak personally for a minute. I, I have, uh, when I was younger, I definitely both smoked and inhaled uh, marijuana, uh, and very occasionally since then. But I discovered for myself, because I really, preparing for this, I knew that you were both very pro-marijuana, so I really searched the web for legitimate negative, uh, the con argument. There's a very interesting website uh, called Procon, and uh, oh, which yeah, lists the arguments on both sides. Uh, to my regret, in that sense, the the con arguments didn't seem very strong for the most part. But in my own experience, and I'm really trying to think of, for one thing, you're clear. You suggest that this shouldn't be used by adolescents, right? Uh, unless they're ill. Unless they're ill, you say that uh, uh, as a precaution that people trying to get pregnant or a pregnant women shouldn't use it 
as a precaution. Err on the side of, yeah. And then you had a third category, if I remember, or not? Yeah, there's some people who get into an obsessive relationship with marijuana, Mm -hmm. where it doesn't become an enhancement to their overall vital, dynamic lives. It kind of becomes a cul-de-sac. And and for some people who use it too much, it can induce um, unusual thoughts. It, it, it can people get in a little delusional sometimes uh, state of thinking. I have a friend, and um, he has a brother who I write about was using all day, every day, quite a bit. Was a medical professional. And didn't seem to impair the work so much, but what he would talk to the patients about was a little, you know, kind of cringy. And it started to interfere with his practice because people were worried when he was telling them about how he had, you know, been channeling John Lennon or whatever he had been doing. And he had to go and get some treatment. So there are people who get into what Andrew Weil calls a bad relationship with marijuana. And my friend Mickey Norris, who's in the movement, says, you know, you don't have to blame pot. They might be in a bad relationship with something else if it wasn't the marijuana. And at least with marijuana, they're not causing organ damage. They're not doing, you know, central nervous system damage. If you're going to be addicted to something, this is... If you're going to be a loser and have a vice, (laughs) marijuana is probably the best one you can go for. So... So for me personally, the the principal reason that I don't smoke it is that uh, I enjoy the high, Mm -hmm. but for me, I have a kind of a feeling of flatness for four or five days afterward. It's as though I had borrowed sensory stimulation from a store and that I feel flat, and while I like the high the flatness afterward is not worth it. And because I just normally wake up feeling good, um, the flatness doesn't seem worth the price. That's mm. number one. That's interesting. Uh, number heard, two, it increases heartbeat. And I understand it's not good if you have marginally high blood pressure. Is that a fair well, statement? It lowers blood pressure. Oh, it lowers blood yeah. pressure. But, but it, it can cause tachycardia. Yeah, tachycardia. It oh, tachycardia. Does okay. Yeah. So that generally they find that people who use that subsides after you know a few uses... Now, in the countries that have most decriminalized it, the Netherlands is a good example, what are the sociological consequences? I mean, I think they've been ambiguous. It's not only that tourists come wanting it, but I think they've gone back toward more control a bit, haven't they? Because they were concerned about the social impact. Well, what happened, and it's really maddening, because what happened was essentially far-right government right. took power in the Netherlands. And it's not that there are this, there's a whole host of problems resulting from the availability of cannabis. There's not. It's just that the availability of cannabis is a problem for the far-right wing legislators. They don't like the idea. They're in this brainwashed um, state that they believe it's immoral and wrong and they therefore there must be harms that come from it because they believe it's wrong. And so just the fact that it's there and it's available is a problem for them. But if you look at the Netherlands, there's an 
awful lot of tobacco use there. There's an awful lot of drinking. You can't tell me that more people have gotten into fights, fallen into, fallen into canals, vomited, had head or any other kind of muscle skeletal injuries from marijuana compared to alcohol. So it seems to me if there's a real social concern, they should move more towards alcohol prohibition than reestablishing cannabis prohibition. You're listening to a conversation with Dr. Donald Abrams, Clint Werner, and host Michael Lerner. I guess, I guess, I guess my caution on this is, and I realize all the evidence that it's a remarkably benign substance, but it seems to me that in almost any medicine, there's no such thing as a free lunch. That there's something that is harmed, uh, uh, and even though looking at this, I haven't been able to see it. Um, for example, you you rebut the theory that it it leads to increased schizophrenia. Um, I certainly have seen with my own eyes young people who got into marijuana and then became schizophrenic. Now, I'm not saying it's a causal relationship, but young man in Bolinas who I knew very well got into marijuana early, uh, you know, became schizophrenic. Um, yeah, Can I Donald, comment yeah, on that? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, a friend of mine is Daniele Piamelli, who's a mm-hmm. cannabinoid researcher at UC Irvine, yeah. and he finds that schizophrenics have increased levels of endocannabinoids in their cerebrospinal fluid. Mm -hmm. And I think that the explanation that I like best is that schizophrenics determine at a young, or pre-schizophrenics determine at a young age that cannabis helps their thought processes. Self-medication. Yeah, I have a colleague at San Francisco Mm -hmm. General whose brother Mm -hmm. is schizophrenic, and the only medicine Mm -hmm. that helps him is cannabis. Mm -hmm. So I think that these people are pre-schizophrenic and use mm-hmm. cannabis uh, to help them with their thought disorder and then get diagnosed with schizophrenia at a later date. I don't think it's causal. Well, and Donald, would you, would you believe that if marijuana were completely legalized and widely available, that there would be no significant negative social impacts in terms of health or behavior let in just, American society? Let me just say one more thing yeah, about schizophrenia, yeah. that they, they're... Prevalence of schizophrenia in society is 1% regardless right. of Levels decade of, of cannabis right. use. And right. So I was on the California Medical Association Technical Advisory Committee on legalization and taxation. Mm-hmm. And uh, at our first face-to-face meeting, I had to go give a lecture in the middle of the... It was an eight-hour meeting, and I had to leave from 11 to 2 to give a lecture, 11 to 1.30. And I came back, and there, well, if it's not Schedule 1, what schedule should it be? And I came back, and I said, you know what? Let's forget about schedule. Let's treat it like echinacea or, you know, saw palmetto. Let people access it as a botanical. It's a flower, Mm -hmm. you know. Let people access it. Maybe you need to be 21 or 18 years old to access it from, you know, regulate it like tobacco or or uh, alcohol. You know, limit the age that you can procure it. But, you know, let's, you know, it's it's a flower. It's, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that... uh, you know, as I often say, I went to Brown University and Stanford University School of Medicine, and during those nine years, cannabis was my recreational substance of choice. Mm-hmm. And I bet you I'm a different person than if I had chosen alcohol. Mm-hmm. 
better person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and by I, the way, and he won't smoke enough now. I keep trying to get him to. And yeah, he always wants me to protect myself from Alzheimer's. Take one puff. One puff. And one puff is enough. A puff is, is enough. A puff a day. tells me so. But you know, I I got work to do. Let's. But, but, I, but I write. I really believe. I write. And I believe that we need to start thinking about marijuana not in terms of alcohol and cigarettes, but in terms of blueberry and broccoli. It is a helpful plant that produces compounds that benefit our health. And, and that, you know, it does have this... But your question, if it was completely legalized, nothing, like, nothing's an absolute free ride. Um, the harms from marijuana. I said, you know, they're the people who should probably avoid it. But if you smoke really harsh cannabis and you smoke it from a hot source, a small pipe, or a lot of joints, you can get upper respiratory irritation bronchitis. Um, I don't think people should drive right after smoking. Um, There is now evidence that the traffic deaths have dropped in states that have legalized medical marijuana. So it's so much safer than alcohol because if you think about it, alcohol kills off that paranoid self-preservation part of your brain, whereas cannabis, you know, it, it kind of kicks it into, it, it's there, it's active. You know, I'm not getting behind the wheel, I'm way too baked. You drive, which you don't get with alcohol, you I can drive, ah, ah, leave me alone, I'm good to drive. And so, but I still think that it, it, it can make you distracted. I mean, if someone's driving and they're high, you definitely don't want to be on a device at all. You don't want to be any time. But that's what scares me, is someone trying to... So it's driving-related things particularly. Well, right. although the data shows that there are less... Right. Uh, I, I had lunch yesterday with Mark Pletcher, who was the senior author of the... Uh, or the first author of the uh, Journal of American Medical Association article came out this month on that cannabis does not damage pulmonary function. And in fact, people Enhanced who are it. chronic cannabis smokers... Have enhanced pulmonary function. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, so we had lunch yesterday trying to figure out. Now he wants to look at calcification of coronary yeah, arteries yeah. because, you know, with being anti-inflammatory and antioxidant, it's likely that people are going to have less. And there was another article. I asked him to look at body mass index because, mm. you know, even though cannabis enhances appetite, people who are regular cannabis users seem to have a better body mass index, less obesity than people who don't. Mm. Interesting. So, you know, I think. I'm going to open it up now. I'd like to ask people to keep their questions brief. Uh, I particularly welcome questions with people with substantive expertise. The lady in the back. Question about endorphins that we know things that stimulate natural production of endorphins. What's the research on natural stimulations on cannabinoids? Can you repeat the question? On On endogenous cannabinoids. What's the research on natural stimulation of endogenous cannabinoids? There's some suggestion that the consumption of good quality oils would work as sort of a precursor to the production of endocannabinoids. I do recall seeing one study that didn't prove it, um, but there seems to be other studies that indicate that might be possible. I think she means like physical activity. Uh, I think the things, and and do the endorphins in the endogenous cannabinoids, do they have a cascade effect? I don't, I'm not a neuro, you know, scientist, so I don't know the answer to that. But I think there was recently something that, something interesting led to increased endocannabinoids, but I'm forgetting what it is because I don't do a buff enough. (laughs) (laughs) 
But uh, those are all good questions, and I think people haven't studied. The endocannabinoids are rapidly destroyed, so they are a little difficult to measure. Like endorphin. So uh, I did have a point of information for it. So there are uh, police departments in the state of California where in towns where there are dispensaries and also where there are doctors who are recommending marijuana who've done studies of the effect on the town of the presence of dispensaries, like the town of Sebastopol, mm -hmm. and at, where they're looking at is there more crime or and littering, you know, is there more garbage on the street? And in, in Sebastopol, I know from reading the report and talking to the police chief, Jeff Weaver, that there is no negative effect on the town of Sebastopol at all from having an operating dispensary and, and like, uh, uh, Dr. Hergen, rather, who has, like, 1,900 marijuana patients. Thank you. Thanks for the point. So my, but my question was, I, I, could you say something about when you, either by email or phone or in person, what do people from the federal government say to you about, could you say something about, you know, you know what they... What, the federal what government? They don't, they don't call much. Can you say something about what the mindset of the of the people are? Actually, uh, Clint Clint has thought a lot about this subject, and so Clint, maybe you could respond to that. Generally, it's you know, some people are so un. Well, the science is really new. A lot of people don't know. what. I, this is why I wrote the book. That's why I put it out there, so people would know that, you know, people can... I say that people can be can ambassadors. They can use this as a handbook to be ambassadors for cannabis to educate the world. So this data that really is, you know, overwhelming and shows that there are some really amazing benefits to using marijuana, it's very new. And a lot of people don't know that, so they're still in the mindset that this is negative and destructive and harmful and causes all kinds of health problems. Um, a lot of that's just leftover baggage from previous eras. Uh, unfortunately, it really looks to me like a lot of people want to cling to the, this policy and this attitude because there is such the prison industrial complex really benefits from having a huge number of essentially passive victims channeled in to work as slaves in prison to produce goods for whatever finger hut or whoever it is. There is a huge industry that comes from, you know, providing services to prison. The whole, the whole complex is really rotten and, and evil. <clears throat> Let me just answer one thing that you were saying about uh, slightly related. In Portugal, where they've legalized all substances, uh, they have less use of cannabis among uh, adolescents than in any European Union nation. It takes, it takes that outlaw yes. deal away from it. Yeah. You have a question? Yeah. Okay, so given all that, granted all that, could you also speak to psychological dependency? To what? Psychological dependency. My point, boy, that's a tough one, because I make the point that there are people who use marijuana every day, and they don't have an issue with it. 
they've got their lives going, they, you know, they've got a good family life, they're productive, they're involved in their civic activities or whatever, they get the dogs out and walking, all of this. But there are people, and that's one of the group I say should probably temper their use or, or get away from it, people who become too psychologically involved with it, dependent or enmeshed. And it, instead of enhancing activities, it <coughs> overtakes them. Um, so eight percent. Eight percent. I didn't. Eight percent of people are felt to have, you know, a psychological. Business. Well, those are the people who are regular users, I guess, frequent users. But I don't think all of those are in a bad relationship necessarily. I mean, I know people who smoke all day, every day. And they're really dynamic. I'm not going to call any names, but they're publishing <laughs> books. They've, you know, I know one guy who's started a company, an incredible company. He's in huge demand. He speaks all over the place. And so it really sort of comes down to if someone's, if it's getting in the way of life, and it can for a small percentage of people, they need to do a little self-reflection. I have like a checklist, you know, in here, sort of um, you, you take a survey of yourself. Clint, forgive me. I want to get as many questions in as I can. So this gentleman and then lady here. Yeah. Thank you. With respect to the answer, anti-cancer properties, is there anything relating to the hematologic malignant disease or myeloid proliferative disorders and non-solid neoplasms? No. Is there anything else? Uh, you know, I don't think, again, it's, none of this has really been studied in humans. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's an indication of activity against leukemia. That's Okay. With um, that was the study I believe in '75 that was published, and they did find there was some anti-leukemia activity. Yes. Um, thanks. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. I'll probably ask them like two later. But one is, um, but just about psychiatric research. I work with opioid-dependent clients and HIV-positive clients, and so many of my clients use marijuana um, for psychiatric purposes. So it's different from dependency, but. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about, uh, you know, we, we all know it has a psychoactive effect, and so what's, what's the research showing in terms of sort of medicinal use from a psychiatric perspective, if any research at all? Not my field. Um, the only thing I can speak to is the involvement with schizophrenia, and yeah, that it seems we've already, yeah. And, well, harm reduction. I mean, people, but, you know, there, there are people yeah. who believe that it, it's a good substitute for white powders or things that are injected and, you know, the... Right. I'm thinking about some of the things you mentioned, Clint, around, you know, sort of focus and motivation, um, you, know, um, you know, activation and for patients who suffer from disabilities that cause the opposite of that. I'm just curious. Let me just quote here from, from Wikipedia. Um, and again, you know, this is Wikipedia, but there's uh, evidence that smoking marijuana can have a positive effect on disorders such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or depression. Uh, in patients with bipolar disorders, they've been shown to actually become better after smoking marijuana. Um, and in depression, there are reports uh, of improvement. Uh, on the other hand, a uh, study of 50,000 Swedish soldiers who smoked at least once uh, were twice as likely to develop schizophrenia. Right, Donald spoke yeah, to that. Uh, and... Uh, but a, a Keele University com a study commissioned by the British government uh, found uh, significant reductions in the incidence and prevalence of schizophrenia. So I think, 
as we're hearing, there's not a lot of study being done. It's mixed. I really like Donald's comment on, on the uh, schizophrenics uh, as a, a hypothesis about that. Uh, yes, two ladies here. Why don't you start? I'd like to speak to schizophrenia. I have a friend who uses it to manage the voices in her head. Cogenta and Risperdal, all that don't work. Yeah, so mm -hmm. for her. Yeah. Thank you. Your comment? Um, if I understood you right, you're recommending that it be smoked as opposed to being eaten. Yeah. No, true? that was me. Uh, inhaled, first of all. That's as right. Uh, I just think it's easier for people, yeah. I think if people are familiar with eating, with the, with the delayed effect, you know, I think people need to be educated that it takes a lot longer for a peak concentration so people don't overdose. The I think it's thing you're more... In, in smoke in uh, inhaling it is that inhale, it does not wreck the CVDs or THC to inhale it, right? Right. For example, right. for Alzheimer's patients that it's working on the hippocampus and things like that, that's an inhaled. Either way. Well, I think you can do that and, the same. And what about the CBD-1? Because I've read Dr. William Courtney, who claims that that's totally destroyed in, in inhaling it and it needs to be eaten raw. Or yeah, I don't, Dr. Courtney, I, I'm not, you know, totally familiar with or embracing all of his... Right you know, premises. He's, they make juice out of leaves, and right. I don't know that... So all of your studies have been inhaling. Yeah, I, I study inhalation, right. Mm -hmm. Well, my, let me just say to that, my thought is, in terms of um, destroying CBD, that would probably... Well, you destroy a fair amount of the compounds when you ignite it. So if you're vaporizing, I would expect you to get a higher delivery because you're not using there's not there's no breakdown you, you know when you light a, a a toke you get the edge of what the fire is burning you don't get what's been being burned so much it's sort of like a progressive vaporization and then combustion do you get terpenes in yeah that's also an interesting thing with vaporization terpenes. is terpenes, terpenes is you can adjust the level of the heat in a vaporizer in the volcano style vaporizer and if I'm right, I have to go back and check, but I believe terpenes vaporize at either a higher or lower level than cannabinoids. So you could sort of do one pass at a lower level and then crank it up and do another pass. Sergeant Greenwood. Yeah, I remember a study uh, a few years ago from USC, I think it was, about a lower incidence of lung cancer yeah. in regular smokers. And so I was wondering, yeah, what about that, and, and what about the use of marijuana in people with lung cancer? Yeah, it's pretty impressive because, like I said, if they had found it didn't hurt the lungs, that would have been enough. But to find that it actually tamps down the incidence of lung cancer is pretty amazing. So it's the cannabinoids. You have the smoke. You smoke marijuana. You get some bad compounds. You get some... Uh, you get your carbon monoxide, you get your um, benzene compounds that are carcinogenic, just like cigarette smoke. <clears throat> but the thing is, you don't have the nicotine and you do have the THC. And so you have this wall of harm when you smoke marijuana. But THC and CBD seem to carry you up over the wall and still produce benefit. So if you take the smoke out and you're vaporizing, you're going to get a pure mist without any of the harmful carcinogenic compounds. 
So I think that it might be a great idea for someone with lung cancer to vaporize marijuana regularly. And I showed and you in the data in the, in the nude mice that lung cancers did respond to cannabinoids when they were given to the nude is, mice. Is part of the possibility there that it's the direct application of the cannabinoids to the, to the, to the, to the tumor? Yeah. Well, that's right. what yeah. Manuel Guzman did a study in right. the Canary Islands where they dripped THC into recurrent brain tumors right. through a catheter. And I said, you know, that's really not how we treat cancer <laughs> right. locally. But it is, you know, it's... And what happened to the brain? Well, some people got a little, okay. you know, wasn't very dramatic. Right. Okay. There were some Other some questions? Yes. Alan. Um, can you comment on the uh, Canadian product called Sativex? Sativex. Not a Canadian product, actually. It's from the UK, but it's approved in Canada. So Sativex is a whole plant extract of cannabis, and uh, they're very much focused on the CBD and THC. So they have one that's THC and one that's CBD and one that's uh, mixed uh, one-to-one ratio. And, and it's, uh, it's an under-the-tongue spray, and it's uh, been studied in multiple sclerosis and in cancer pain and does seem to be effective in both situations. Uh, so it is licensed and approved in... Uh, many European nations and in Canada. In the U.S., clinical trials are still ongoing in patients with uh, cancer pain. It's not yet approved. And I just want to say something about Sativex. So Sativex is produced in Great Britain by a British, essentially, pharmaceutical company. And um, my concern is that this is going to be something the government throws out and tries to kill off medical marijuana. It's far more expensive than medical marijuana, and it's funneling money out of our country to Great Britain. I say the cannabinoid product should be produced locally and should benefit the community because we can produce safe, effective delivery systems. You go to any of the good dispensaries, Harborside or Spark or any of these other really good ones, and they have a variety. They have their own Sativex-like sprays. They have tinctures. They have capsules. It's amazing. Concentrates. And we just we, we don't need a product that's going to use prohibition to gain a market monopoly. You had a question? Yeah. yeah. I, I just would like for you to comment a little more about your recommendation of teenagers, adolescents um, not using marijuana. Can you say more about so, that? There's so many positive aspects to it, but the problem with young people is that they don't have the life skills to manage things that we tend to. Um, they're a little less um, discriminating about things. And so at that point where you're an adolescent, what you're doing is you're gathering skills and knowledge and you're pulling all this in. You're finding where your interests lie. You're really growing your connections in your brain. And although I don't think there's any organic harm, it can be, a, you know, young people can get into a distraction where all they want to do is get high and hang out. And that's not good. They need to be engaged in developing self, creating who they're going to be in the future. And it can get in the way of that. At least they're not damaging their kidneys and their liver and their brain by using it. I just want to comment on his uh, prohibition for pregnant women, too, because my goddaughter, whose wedding we're going to uh, this summer, who's a lovely, accomplished 28-year-old, was born to a mother who couldn't stop her hyperemesis, gravidim, you know, the... Vomiting. vomiting of pregnancy with anything but cannabis, and so that's what she did, and her daughter's... Yeah, there's no mutagenic quality to cannabis. It's not going to cause 
you know, some three-legged child to be born or anything like that. But it's just early on in the thing is in the development of the 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 fertilized egg needs this compound called called VEGF, which facilitates rapid cell division. Tumor cells have rapid cell division facilitated by VEGF, and that's one way THC attacks tumors is by decreasing VEGF. Clint, uh, on well, in your book, you talk about I've asked about the social cost of of uh, legalization. But in your book, uh, you have a rather compelling analysis of the number of people who've been arrested for marijuana that, that becomes a felony on their record that has all kinds of consequences in terms of employment uh, and so on. Do you remember the statistics on the number of, you cite them, but roughly the number of people who've been arrested or the social cost on that side? I know it's well, yeah, 180,000 a year. And, yeah, it's about 200,000, close to. Right, so 180,000 people a year are arrested. Incarcerated. Or 800,000, 800,000, sorry, 800,000. 800,000 a year. Yeah. Yeah. 800,000. I knew it, there was an eight in there okay. somewhere. So 800,000 people a year, many of them then have felony counts on their records. Which is one thing well, I, I want to say that yeah. the reason we hear about psychological and that so many people are yeah. addicted or have problems is because many people who use cannabis, right. instead of getting a felony charge, can turn themselves in and get treatment. Right. And so that's why the treatment numbers are much higher than they actually are, because people are going to go into treatment as somebody who has problems with cannabis as opposed to becoming a felon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're caught, if you're using marijuana once a year and you get arrested, mm-hmm. then you can be offered in these harsh states where they're, like mm-hmm. Oklahoma, mm-hmm. They might even might not even offer you treatment, but they offer you, you know, jail time, a record, or treatment. Anyone in their right mind is going to go for treatment, sit through the nonsense they're going to spoon feed you, and say yes sir, yes sir, yes sir. So that really ups the level of um, people who are seeking treatment right. for marijuana, which allows law enforcement to claim that they need more money to enforce the laws against marijuana. It's this horrible, self-perpetuating nightmare. So if somebody were to do as objective as possible in analysis, where you looked at the potential social costs of legalization, I still think there are going to be some that uh, are unforeseen. I actually believe that. Uh, on the other hand, the costs of the system as we have it, both the level of investment on the war on drugs, whatever you define it, the number of people in prison, the number of people with felony counts, that so on and so forth, Somehow you have to ask yourself, uh, if you're not an advocate of one side or the other, uh, where does the greatest social benefit lie? Uh, does it lie with the perhaps unknown consequences of legalization? Or does it lie with a system which, uh, uh, which creates known high social costs in terms of enforcement, in terms of prison, in terms of felony records and so forth? I'm just trying to back off from a, an advocacy position here and say that's the great social question right. that America faces. As an advocate, you've made a very strong case in Marijuana Gateway to Health uh, for decriminalization and, and legalization. And Donald, uh, as a, a scientist and researcher, uh, as I said at the outset, uh, <coughs> You've been a, a great pioneer in this field, and, and we thank you both for being with us at the New School. Thank great, you. Thank you. Great conversation. <laughs> 
You've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Donald Abrams, M.D., Clint Werner, and New School at Commonweal host, Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at the-new-school.org. That's the-new-school.org. Thank you for listening.